Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. First buses, now planes. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent dozens of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. A Massachusetts state lawmaker responds. The White House announces a tentative deal to avert a rail strike and shipping chaos. President Biden receiving support from an unexpected corner. President Biden announces an ambitious funding plan for electric vehicle charging stations. How realistic are his goals? We hear from some automobile experts. The Senate is pushing a new Taiwan defense bill. The bill is meant to counter increasing threats to the self-ruled island from the Chinese regime. Dozens of illegal immigrants are in Martha's Vineyard, an upscale island vacation spot in Massachusetts. That's after Governor Ron DeSantis sent two planes from Florida to the island last night. Here's that story. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is using a similar tactic as other Republican governors in states close to the border. DeSantis on Wednesday sent two planes filled with illegal immigrants from Florida to Massachusetts's Martha's Vineyard, an island of 15,000 residents, often visited by wealthy and famous people. A spokesperson for DeSantis's re-election campaign tweeted, Martha's Vineyard residents should be thrilled about this. They vote for sanctuary cities, they get a sanctuary city of their own and illegal aliens will increase the town's diversity, which is strength, right? However, not all locals seem to be thrilled. Representative Dylan Fernandez, a state lawmaker who represents Martha's Vineyard, says Republicans who call themselves Christians have been plotting for some time to use human lives, men, women, and children, as political pawns. It is evil and inhumane. The representative also showed that last night locals were putting together 50 beds, giving everyone a good meal, providing a play area for the children, and making sure people have the health care and support they need. And on Thursday morning, two buses filled with illegal border crossers from Del Rio, Texas, sent by Governor Greg Abbott, arrived near Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in Washington, D.C. Reporter Griff Jenkins posted this video on Twitter showing the people who arrived. That comes after the Vice President on Sunday told NBC's Meet the Press that the border is secure. She also discussed citizenship. We also have to put in place a, 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 a law and a plan for a pathway for citizenship for the millions of people who are here in our Harris parents. said many are willing to do what is required to obtain citizenship legally, but there's currently no way to do that. She says that's because people are playing politics. In other news, President Biden says a tentative deal has been reached between the unions and rail companies. That means they've potentially averted a major strike that could have halted the U.S. economy and hit food and fuel supplies. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden called the tentative deal a win for thousands of rail workers, as well as the companies who will now be able to, quote, retain and recruit more workers. The agreement came around 5 in the morning Thursday after 20 consecutive hours of negotiations at the Department of Labor. One union leader thanked Biden and the Labor Department. Last night was a uh, historic night for rail labor. Uh, we're very proud of what was accomplished. Uh, everybody pulling together to make sure that uh, we could get our members what they, uh, what they deserve. While we don't know the details, Biden said the agreement gives rail workers better pay and improved working conditions. Union leader Dennis Pierce agreed. This is the quality of life issue that we have been trying to get for our members since bargaining around. 
Negotiators had until Friday to reach a deal. A potential strike and shutdown could freeze almost 30 percent of U.S. cargo shipments and cost the U.S. economy up to $2 billion per day. Arthur Wheaton from Cornell University says it's a huge political hot potato because a strike could make inflation worse. Nobody wants the strike to interfere with an already fragile economy. So a strike in this sector could raise grain prices, could raise fertilizer prices, could any of the materials that are shipped by rail could go up. Biden established an emergency board to help speed up negotiations. The president got some surprise support Wednesday from Republicans who submitted a resolution to pass recommendations made by Biden's team. This is really weird that Senator Wicker and I are on the floor introducing legislation that supports the president's position. Progressive caucus member Bernie Sanders opposed the measure. There cannot be an approval of a union agreement unless the workers themselves vote on it. The deal will now go back to the unions for a vote. After that, there will be a cooling off period of several weeks. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Turning now to the push for green energy, President Biden is pledging $900 million to build electric vehicle charging stations across the nation. But some auto experts and everyday Americans are skeptical of Biden's ambitions. Here's more. President Biden at the Detroit Auto Show on Wednesday announced his $900 million plan to fund EV charging stations in 35 states. He says he hopes that in the future, EV charging stations will be as easy to find as gas stations. But some auto experts are not optimistic about the plan. Can you imagine trying to put all the infrastructure together uh, in our country that is so big for electric vehicles? Not that we cannot do it, but it's going to be a challenge. If you think about it, you know, we've been 100 years with gasoline, and there are still parts of our country. For example, I drove from Las Vegas to El Paso. And there were about 50 miles that you couldn't see a gas station. The funding for this plan comes from the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed last year. Biden's goal is to create a nationwide EV charging network, which will then encourage more Americans to buy electric vehicles. But there are also unique challenges that come with electric vehicles. Only one-fourth of the households in the United States have garage. Most of the people do not have a garage, so they're going to have to charge their cars somewhere else. And, uh, you know, when you arrive to those charging stations, they're not necessarily going to be empty. There's going to be somebody already charging there. Biden plans to have half of all new vehicles sold in the U.S. to be electric or plug-in hybrid by 2030 and boost the number of EV charging stations by 500,000. How are people in Detroit reacting to his plans? Are we going to get there quick as far as having charging stations available across the country? Right now, it doesn't look like it. He won't be alive and I won't be alive. Because that's when it, when it becomes a reality. It's going to be a while. And it, 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 listen, everybody should have a dream. And he got a dream. That's his dream right now. As part of the infrastructure law, electric vehicles built in North America will be eligible for a federal tax credit of up to $7,500. It's part of an effort to create a U.S. electric vehicle supply chain and to end dependence on other countries, mainly China. More auto news. Ford has an all-new Mustang, and it's not electric. The 2024 model was unveiled in Detroit Wednesday night. It has a new body design and new engine options, but for now, we'll stick with pure gasoline power. Buyers will be able to choose between an improved 5-liter V8 engine or a 2.3-liter turbocharged four-cylinder. 
It comes after Ford announced plans to make a hybrid version of the Mustang in 2017, but with its other fully electric cars, a Ford spokesman said it wasn't needed in order for the automaker to meet its emissions reduction targets. The Mustang remains the last car, as opposed to a truck or SUV, that Ford sells in the United States. The new model is the seventh design generation of the car. It goes on sale next summer. Turning to the election, voters in North Carolina are already casting their ballots for the November general election. They began voting even before Delaware, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire finished their primaries. North Carolina officials sent out vote-by-mail ballots on Tuesday, and the very next day, post offices started receiving the completed vote forms back. North Carolina is the first state to start voting, but soon it won't be alone. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin also plan to send out ballots within a few days. In-person early voting is also set to open soon in nine states. Pennsylvania will start September 19th, while South Dakota, Wyoming, Minnesota, Vermont, and Virginia will begin September 23rd and 24th. As with vote by mail, there is great variation in when in-person early voting periods begin and how long they last. It varies from state to state and, in some cases, from county to county. But in Delaware, voting by mail may no longer be an option. A state court ruled yesterday that the state's mail-in voting practices violate the Delaware Constitution. As it stands now, mail-in voting is blocked. It could mean the state will reject mail-in votes for the general election. The Democratic-controlled Delaware General Assembly passed a law in June allowing vote by mail, but they previously tried to amend the state constitution but failed to secure enough Republican support. Republicans were critical of new mail-in voting measures at the height of the pandemic and accused election officials of ignoring constitutions. They claimed this departure from the usual election procedures allowed Democrats to cheat. Lawmakers were able to use vote-by-mail in 2020 by invoking emergency powers, but they didn't reference any emergency authority when passing the new law, so the state judge ruled it was unconstitutional. More in the upcoming elections, Pennsylvania Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman has set a date to debate his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz. Fetterman has committed to an October 25th debate that's just two weeks before the election. Fetterman is recovering from a stroke he suffered in May. He's come under pressure from the Oz campaign for refusing to debate. In a statement yesterday, Fetterman said Oz has agreed to the date. No response yet from the Oz campaign. Will House Speaker Nancy Pelosi try to keep her seat if Democrats hold on to the House majority this fall? She won't say, no matter how much reporters pushed her on the matter Wednesday. Take a listen. Did you not? Are we speaking a different language? (laughs) First we win, then we decide. Pelosi talked about the Democrats' success heading into the midterm elections November 8th, pointing to two surprise victories in Alaska and New York, saying she and her colleagues, quote, fully intend to hold the House. Abortion is a big issue for both sides, and Pelosi believes there's conflict among Republicans on the matter, but she says Democrats are united. Former Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo hints at a run for president in 2024. At an event in Chicago earlier this week, he said he's putting a team together. According to Politico, Pompeo said, quote, We are trying to figure out if that is the next place for us to serve. If we conclude it is, we'll go make the case to the American people. Pompeo was speaking at a Q&A session with the CEO of Motorola on Tuesday. He focused on his record as a diplomat and said China is the greatest external threat in his eyes. The former Secretary of State avoided bad-mouthing former President Trump. Pompeo commented that he's deeply grateful he was hired as Secretary of State. 
He added that he hopes Trump is enjoying retirement, prompting laughs from the crowd. In California, two people were arrested Wednesday in connection to the burglary of a representative's home. The incident happened on Friday at the home of Congresswoman Karen Bass, who was also a candidate for mayor of Los Angeles. It comes after police identified the suspect's vehicle and license plate on the day of the crime. They later found the vehicle and arrested the suspects without incident. They're both charged with one count of residential burglary. And coming up, reactions to the FBI's form that asks people to give up their gun rights. Will this give the government more control over the people or help make communities safer? We bring you some analysis right after the break. Now we turn to Second Amendment concerns, specifically the FBI's new form for Americans to fill out that aims to keep guns away from people who may be a risk. Some say it's a step towards curbing mass shootings. Over 470 have occurred in the U.S. this year, with notable ones including those in Uvalde, Texas, Buffalo, New York, and Highland Park, Illinois. Others say it's consistent with steps taken by tyrannical regimes in other countries to disarm and control the populace. We explore this with our next guest. Joining us now to discuss the documents that show the FBI is pressuring people to give up their gun rights is Alan West, a retired U.S. Army colonel and former member of Congress. Pleasure speaking with you today, Alan. It is good to be with you, Kevin. And also, I just want to add in, I'm a former member of the Board of Directors of the National Rifle Association. Good to know. And so in an effort to reduce shootings, the FBI is giving people the option to forfeit their rights to own, purchase, or use firearms if they think they're a danger to themselves or to others due to mental health issues. First, do you think this would help solve the problem? No, it's not going to help solve the problem. Secondly, it's unconstitutional uh, because in the individual out there, uh, they do have that right to be able to own uh, firearms. And the FBI is not a mental health organization that can properly go out there and vet or uh, counsel or recognize any issues that will preclude someone from owning a firearm. The main thing that we need to look at, most of the gun-related crimes that are being committed out there are by people that should not be in possession of these firearms, and they're not being prosecuted for illegal possession of firearms. You look at all of these inner-city shootings that we have in Chicago, most of these are gang-related, and we're not tackling it. And the other thing that we see happening are these bail reform laws, which are releasing violent criminals back out onto the streets. We should be adhering to the rule of law and not allowing criminals to go back on the street where the rate of recidivism is quite high. So, Alan, if you don't think that this move by the FBI will help solve the problem, what do you think is the real reason? I think the real reason the FBI is doing this, and it goes back to the founding of the United States of America, is that people on the left understand very simply that if you want to subjugate a population, they cannot be armed. They cannot be able to defend themselves. One of the first things that Hugo Chavez did in rising to power in Venezuela was to eradicate private gun ownership. We saw that happen in every single 20th century dictatorship or despotic uh, rise of a ruler such as Adolf Hitler, Chairman Mao, Stalin, you name it. And so I think that uh, backdoor, this is starting to happen here in the United States of America. And the Second Amendment is very clear. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but yet you still see these infiltration methods of them trying to do so. You mentioned the Constitution. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee wrote on Twitter, you cannot sign away your constitutional rights despite what the FBI wishes. What's your reaction to this? 
No, she's absolutely right. And so this whole thing about look at what happened in COVID, no emergency suspends the rule of law, suspends constitutional rights. And government never had the right to decide who or what is essential and to shut down private sector businesses. And to go and tell people you can sign a form and surrender your Second Amendment rights, uh, that's very disconcerting for me because you start to look at a lot of our veterans. They're trying to disqualify our veterans for going out and having counseling or therapies based upon PTS, post-traumatic stress. And we don't want to see our veterans get put into a system. And the next thing you know, they can never uh, possess a firearm. Well, a National Gun Rights Group, Gun Owners of America, told the Epic Times, we've learned the FBI had no business disarming these individuals. They did not pose a threat to society. The FBI's actions were wholly unlawful. What do you make of this? I have to totally agree with Gun Owners of America. And also, we have to be concerned about this so somewhat continuation of these red flag laws, things of this nature, which really usurp an individual's constitutional rights. It wasn't too long ago that a gentleman in Maryland was uh, killed because of red flag laws. No one knows who instituted that against him. And so now we see the federal government take it to the next level. I live down here in Texas, and let me tell you about the failure of the Nick system. The shooter in Uvalde, Texas, should have never been allowed to get a firearm because he lived, he shared a residence with his grandfather, who was a felon. Felons were not allowed to have weapons or be anywhere near weapons. So when he put down his grandfather's address as his place of residence, the Nick system should have kicked him out and said, you're not allowed to purchase firearms. So what we need to do is go back and streamline and make sure that the Nick system is doing what it's supposed to do. Well, we'll see what the FBI does in response to the public opinion here. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. An update from a mass shooting case in Florida. The defense team and the Parkland school shooter abruptly rested its case yesterday, leading to the judge to reprimand the lack of professionalism. The team was expected to call 80 witnesses, but they only called 26. The move caught prosecutors off guard. They told the judge they weren't ready with their rebuttal yet. Yes, um, at this time the defense rests. We have another day wasted. I, I just, I honestly, I had never experienced a level of unprofessionalism in my career. It, it's unbelievable. The rebuttal by prosecutors is planned to begin September 27th. Closing arguments will follow in early October. The shooter pleaded guilty last October to 17 counts of both murder and attempted murder in the 2018 shooting at a Florida high school. A jury is now debating his sentence. Prosecutors are requesting the death penalty. The defense team is asking for life in prison without parole. In Iowa, a teen who killed her accused rapist has been sentenced. The judge gave her five years of closely supervised probation and ordered her to pay $150,000 to the alleged rapist family. 17-year-old Piper Lewis pleaded guilty last year to involuntary manslaughter and willful injury in the June 2020 killing. Both charges were punishable by up to 10 years in prison. The judge deferred the prison sentences, meaning that if Lewis violates any portion of her probation, she could be sent to prison to serve that 20-year term. However, the judge said that the court has no other option but to keep the $150,000 restitution due to mandatory legal requirements. Officials say Lewis was a runaway and was sleeping in the hallways of an apartment building. A 28-year-old man took her in and forcibly trafficked her to other men for sex. She said one of those men was 37-year-old Zachary Brooks and that he raped her on multiple occasions. 
She told officials she grabbed a knife from a bedside table and stabbed Brooks in a fit of rage. Over to another crime case, a Baltimore man convicted for a 1999 murder could get a new trial after over two decades. His case became famous when it was the subject of the popular podcast, Serial. Adnan Syed was a teenager when he was found guilty of murdering his ex-girlfriend. He was sentenced to life in prison. However, the Juvenile Restoration Act was passed last year. It allows juveniles convicted of crimes to request their sentence be modified after 20 years. Syed has maintained his innocence since his conviction, and attorneys were able to present some issues with the case to the state. After taking another look at his case, Baltimore prosecutors say Syed's conviction should be vacated. They pointed to newly discovered evidence. According to a statement from the state attorney's office, the reinvestigation revealed the possible involvement of two other suspects. The suspects were known at the time, but weren't properly ruled out. Should the motion be granted, the state will request that Syed be released pending the investigation. Funeral arrangements for a World War II veteran who took part in the D-Day landings have been set. Jim Peewee Martin died on Sunday at the age of 101. Memorial services will take place in Bellbrook, Ohio on Tuesday, September 20th. Martin will be buried the following day. Martin joined the Army shortly after Pearl Harbor. He was a paratrooper during World War II, serving in the 101st Airborne Division. He was among the first Allied troops to storm Nazi-occupied France. In addition to D-Day landings at Normandy, Martin also took part in Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands and the Battle of the Bulge. The World War veteran celebrated his 101st birthday this April. His advice to a long life was, always be optimistic and use your life to make other people happy. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Germany says they're changing how they handle trade deals with China. The country's economy minister says they will no longer be cheated. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. A comprehensive overhaul of U.S.-Taiwan policy. That's what one bill aims to do amid heightened threats from China. And today's Iris Tao has more on the Senate's latest move on the legislation. With strong bipartisan support, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday approved a bill that its architects say could overhaul U.S. policy toward Taiwan. Called the Taiwan Policy Act, the bill in its current form would provide $4.5 billion in defense aid to the democratically ruled island. It would also designate Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally and rename Taiwan's de facto embassy in Washington. Here's Senator Kevin Kramer's take on it. We have to take strong measures to send strong signals to the leadership in China that we are not going to just sort of roll over or sit back, and, but rather take their aggression very seriously. While senators who sponsor the bill have said its goal is not to change U.S.-Taiwan policy, the White House has expressed concerns over the bill amid increasingly tense relations with Beijing. There are elements of that legislation with respect to how we can strengthen our security assistance for Taiwan that are quite uh, effective and robust that will improve Taiwan's security. There are other elements that give us some concern. And what would you say about concerns that it could hurt U.S.-China relations? Well, I think that the leadership in, in China have already 
made you know made that um, a high priority. And that is, they've chosen to hurt the relationship. They've chosen to to be much more aggressive. We can't simply sit back and not be not respond. Meanwhile, the U.S. is reportedly weighing sanctions on China to deter it from a threatened invasion of the island. Meanwhile, the future of the Taiwan Policy Act is still uncertain. Upon passage in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, it still needs to pass the whole Senate, not to mention the fact that there's still not a companion bill to it in the House. But Congressman Steve Shabbat tells me that he's hopeful that's going to bring real changes. Well, we're glad that the senators are working on this right now. Um, I would like to see something in the House comparable to this. And, and I think it's, it's far uh, overdue that we do away with this strategic ambiguity. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Beijing voicing support for Russia's war on Ukraine. Despite the public remark, it was left out of an official meeting record. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more with China in Focus. Beijing has given its most explicit support to Russia's war in Ukraine so far. Coming from China's number three official on a visit to Russia. We see that the United States and its NATO allies are expanding their presence near the Russian borders, seriously threatening national security and the lives of Russian citizens. We fully understand the necessity of all the measures taken by Russia aimed at protecting its key interests. We are providing our assistance. Li Zhenshu is the third highest ranking official in the Communist Party. He visited Moscow last week and met with Putin. The speech marks a turn from Beijing's previous stance. Before, even though the regime avoided condemning Russia for invading Ukraine, no Chinese officials gave public endorsement. The regime also didn't admit that it was providing assistance. At the meeting, Li Jianshu went on to add, On the Ukrainian issue, we see how they have put Russia in an impossible situation. And in this case, Russia made an important choice and responded firmly. The official Chinese readout of the meeting gave no mention of Li's support. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is set to meet with Putin in Kazakhstan this Thursday. The Kremlin said the two would talk about the war in Ukraine. Russia and China continue to boost their partnership in other ways, too. The Russian and Chinese navies are conducting joint patrols in the Pacific Ocean today. Russian officials say the goals of the drills include strengthening naval cooperation between the two countries, maintaining peace and stability in the region, and protecting maritime economic activities. German Vice Chancellor and Economy Minister Robert Habeck on Tuesday said Berlin should no longer be blackmailed by China. He promised no more naivety in trade deals with Beijing. Here's more. If China sticks to the rules that enable value-based trade, China is welcome as a trading partner. But we should no longer let ourselves be blackmailed. Not when China meddles with trade fairness, such as with state subsidies for companies, which gives them a competitive advantage, or when it blackmails companies, telling them they can only participate in trade if, for example, they set up a production plant in a particular location, and especially not when human rights are involved. Germany's economy minister said the government was working on a new trade policy with China to reduce dependence on Chinese raw materials batteries and semiconductors, promising no more naivety in trade dealings with Beijing. Robert Habeck did not outline new measures in full, but said they would include closer examination of Chinese investments. Chinese investments in Europe should be scrutinized much more closely. 
We have seen that with its Belt and Road Initiative, China is trying to secure strategic infrastructure assets in Europe, which will then allow it to influence European and German trade policies. We should not allow that to happen. As an example, Habeck signaled he was opposed to plans by China's Costco conglomerate to buy a stake in a container operator at Germany's Hamburg port. He said that China was a welcome trading partner, but Germany could not allow Beijing's protectionism to distort competition and would not hold back criticism of human rights violations under the threat of losing business. Habeck told Reuters Germany must open up to new trading partners and regions, as many sectors were heavily dependent on selling to China, Germany's biggest trade partner for the past six years. Coming up, in Russia, a city council may be dissolved after making calls for President Putin's removal over the war in Ukraine. And the energy crisis is hitting Athens, Greece. Residents are stocking up on firewood to make it through the winter. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. In Russia, a group of city councillors have called for President Putin to be fired over what Moscow calls its special military operation in Ukraine. But a judge has ruled that past council meetings were invalid. Here are the details. A group of local Russian politicians in St. Petersburg faces the likely dissolution of their district council after the call for President Vladimir Putin to be sacked. A councillor said a judge decided on Tuesday that a series of past council meetings had been invalid paving the way for it to be broken up by the regional governor. The main objective of the local regional authorities right now is to show that the members of the council have been punished, that they have kept an eye on this on one hand, and on the other, not to give too much publicity to our case. The same court then fined the councillor about 700 pounds for discrediting the authorities by calling for Putin's removal. In the court and the judge's opinion, Dmitry, by his suggestion for Putin's removal, discredited the president of Russia himself. Four more councillors are due to appear in court in the next two days. Last week, a group of councillors appealed to the state Duma to bring charges of state treason against Putin and strip him of power, citing a series of reasons, including Russia's military losses in Ukraine and the damage to its economy from Western sanctions. Another local deputy published a petition signed by 65 municipal representatives from St. Petersburg, Moscow and several other regions calling for Putin's resignation. While posing no current threat to Putin's grip on power, the moves mark rare expressions of dissent by elected representatives at a time when Russians risk heavy prison sentences for what authorities call discrediting the armed forces or spreading deliberately false information about them. Also in Russia, another executive has died. That makes nine business leaders dead this year, either by suicide or unexplainable accident. The latest reportedly died after falling off his boat near an island in the Sea of Japan. He recently attended a major economic conference with Russian President Putin. Russian state media report that he drowned and his body was found near a Russian village. He was the managing director for the Corporation for the Development of the Far East and the Arctic. His boss died from a stroke at age 43 just this February. The company they worked for is responsible for development in the Arctic. 
Russia prioritizes this region as a large source of oil and gas. Executives at Russia's largest oil company, a state-owned energy company, and natural gas company have also met mysterious fates recently. In Greece, the energy crisis has prompted concerns over the coming winter's heating prices. Officials in Athens are taking advantage of a forest cleanup to provide free firewood. Here's a look. Residents of Athens' Zografu district are rushing to collect firewood. As energy prices continue to soar, these branches will help warm the upcoming winter months. We will use the wood stove for heat, which will warm the living room. Basically only the living room because the heat doesn't reach the rest of the house. Also with an electric blanket, a bit of heating, we will battle it out. Local authorities have organized a project to clean up the woods in a city park. About 20 tons of branches were pruned and distributed to residents for free use. A local environmental organization is involved in the project. Instead of all the wood from the pruning of the trees in all of this area going to waste, we joined forces with the residents. We cleaned the forest, and at the same time, the residents will receive help for winter. Residents welcome the initiative. Most say they can't or won't fill up on heating oil this winter because of high prices. The only heating we have is this wood for the fireplace, nothing else, and some electric heaters, which will be really difficult to plug in this year because we can't afford to pay the power company. According to August data from the Greek Statistics Service, gas prices soared 260 percent over the last year, while electricity rose 38 percent, and heating oil jumped 65 percent. We don't know if we will turn on the heat because the prices for heating oil have become really high, so that's not an option. So let's only hope Almighty God will help us out and not give us a harsh winter. The Prime Minister of Greece last week announced a series of handouts and increases in pensions and wages. He told the nation to prepare for a difficult winter. Since last year, the government has spent more than $8 billion to subsidize household electricity bills. That's as soaring energy prices in the country have sent inflation to above 11 percent, the highest in nearly three decades. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko is commenting on the potential energy crisis that Europe could face come this winter. He says he would help Europe and not let it freeze. The president's social media channel published an apparently tongue-in-cheek clip of Lukashenko on Wednesday. In it, he was shown chopping wood at his residence in Minsk alongside a local businessman. The Belarusian president is an ally of Russia. He said, quote, We have to think how European countrymen and workers can get hold of wood, not rich people. He added that he also cares about Poland's president and prime minister. The European Union proposed emergency measures on Wednesday aimed at bringing down surging gas and power prices. European residents could see sky-high energy bills this winter. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, in France, a growing number of energy-intensive manufacturers are stopping production. Skyrocketing energy costs are making operations unaffordable. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. Good to have you back. Spanish police have arrested the head of one of Europe's biggest money laundering rings. The operation had ties to a drug gang and used the sale of high-end vodka as a cover. 
A police spokesman told Reuters that the high-profile ringleader was arrested on Monday. In total, three people were arrested in Spain and one in England. The ring was dismantled during a joint international operation known as White Wall. Authorities say the criminal network laundered more than 200 million euros in under a year and a half. Police say the leader had ties to an Irish drug trafficking gang. They began tracking the group last year after seizing cocaine and cash hidden in cars. The network also traded in premium brands like luxury vodka promoted in top restaurants in southern Spain. In France, a growing number of energy-intensive manufacturers are deciding to halt production as skyrocketing energy costs make operations uneconomical. NTD's France correspondent David Vivez talked to a policy analyst who says the energy crisis could spell the end of French industry. Swimming pools are among the first victims of the energy crisis in France. Last week, a Normandy-based company, which runs a network of 80 public pools across France, said it decided to close 30 of them, citing soaring energy costs. Electricity prices have multiplied by 10 since January. The French government has implemented measures to shield households and businesses from the direct impact of spiraling energy costs. According to the Bruegel think tank, 1.8% of the French GDP has been allocated to these policies. Author and policy analyst Mourad el says Europe's energy crisis is a result of the EU sanction on Russia over the Ukraine war. We'll be paying a high price for this, since we will suffer serious electricity and gas cuts. This is already being felt, and it will literally kill our entire manufacturing industry. For example, the Chaumont Foundry, which recently announced that its electricity bill had literally doubled from 750,000 to 1.5 million euros, or even 3 million by 2023. I know some restaurant owners who on average had bills of 10,000 euros and are now at almost 50,000 euros. President Emmanuel Macron said in August that freedom would come at a cost and sacrifices needed to be made. Though Macron remained vague, he was referring to the energy prices and its impact on consumers and businesses. El Atap says the high costs might lead to the destruction of many businesses and enterprises in the country. So what we really have to tell the French people is that the so-called price of freedom will be above all the price of destruction of France, of its industry, of its manufacturing. Moreover, the polls prove it. More than 70% of French people are today against this embargo on Russia because it's directed against us. And I don't see why we should follow Macron in a war that hasn't been declared but that already exists. According to a recent poll by Elabe, 74% of the French believe the sanctions were not effective against Russia. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Amid a deepening energy crisis, lights on the Eiffel Tower will soon be turned off more than an hour earlier to save electricity. Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo says the lighting on the iconic tower will be turned off after the last visitor leaves at 11.45 at night instead of 1 in the morning starting next week. The lights at other landmarks in the city, such as City Hall and Arc de Triomphe, will be adjusted as well. Hidalgo says despite all this, Paris will always be the city of lights, and for safety reasons, street lights will stay on across the capital. 
Paris authorities also aim to save energy by lowering the temperature in public buildings by one degree and reducing water temperature in pools. The measures are part of French President Emmanuel Macron's so-called sobriety plan to conserve energy as Paris, like the rest of France and Europe, faces risks of power shortages, rationing, and blackouts this winter. Members of the public have started to pay their respects to the Queen, who is lying in state in Westminster Hall. People will be able to say farewell until 6.30 a.m. on Monday morning. The Queen's coffin traveled by road from Balmoral Castle to Edinburgh before being flown to London. Queen Elizabeth II is now lying in state, her last public duty after over 70 years. Thankfully for the people who are waiting to pay their respects to the Queen today, they were waiting in the sunshine. When uh, the Queen's father, King George, died in 1952, long queues formed despite the snow. When the Queen Mother passed away in 2002, around 200,000 people attended to pay their respects. A royal procession accompanied the Queen's coffin to Westminster Hall down the mall after leaving Buckingham Palace for the final time. Here, Prince Harry, Prince William and King Charles follow the coffin with other royals. So many people are involved in the ceremony, they've prepared for this solemn occasion for some time. Now the public can pay their respects to the Queen. The queue has stretched from Victoria Tower Gardens, which is just here, to Southwark Park. Many people have been queuing patiently to pay their respects to the Queen, a chance for the people to say farewell. Jane Wirral, NTD News, London. Florists in Turkey are racing to meet the huge influx of orders from the UK. Demand for flowers in the country has shot up after the Queen's death. Orders for cut flowers have jumped 90%, but Turkey can only meet about 40% of that demand. Meanwhile, it's now the season when flower production is down in the southern highlands. Surging orders have forced florists to hire planes as a means of shipping. This only takes one day to reach the UK, while regular trucks can take up to a week. Transport company Turkish Cargo said it has sent more than 500,000 blossoms to the UK, weighing a total of 13 tons. According to official data, Turkey's flower exports to the UK rose by 40% between September 5th and 12th compared to last year. And coming up, a famous equine photographer reveals fascinating stories about the horses she photographs. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A well-known TV reporter from Germany suddenly decided to return to her first love, horses. She became a world-renowned equine photographer. Now hundreds of magazines feature her images on their covers yearly. Here's a look. I did interviews with the highest politicians in Germany. Christiana Slowick had a brilliant career as a TV reporter in Germany. On one occasion, when the guests for her live show got ill, she decided to go to a stable to fill 30 minutes of airtime. Christiana has always loved riding, and horses were her first passion. I smelled the horses and the hay. I heard them chewing, which is a wonderful noise, and everything was just so wonderful, and I said... 
I skip my career, I don't care, I want to be with horses again. She first took up painting horses, but found she got too attached to her creations and was unable to sell them. It is much easier for me to do creative and artistic work with photography because uh, I can sell it and still keep it. That's the idea. <laughs> Christiana says she treats horses like friends, and that's why she is able to communicate with them and express what she is looking for in a photograph. And they always oblige. Personality is one of a kind in each horse, just like in people. They have a kind of empathy. Our cultural human beings have lost almost completely. If you're happy or if you're sad, they, they immediately feel this. And this is probably the reason why people like horses so much, because they really connect to you. The artist has many fascinating stories to tell about her work. The one about her signature photograph has a happy ending, but it could have been a disaster. Um, I visited one of the biggest Baroque castles in Europe and I saw this room and I was, oh, I said, this is a room, we need a horse in the room. It took me a little while, but I convinced them, okay, we bring a horse in there. What horse do we need? I said, of course, we need a Lippison from the Spanish riding school. What else in Austria? I was laying on the ground and did my photo with the columns and the stallion. I want to have authentic photos. Do you think we could take the halter off and take a picture without the halter? Then at the same second, this Lippison made a pirouette and jumped towards me. Good luck. The wooden floor was kind of slippery. He slipped a little bit and that stopped him. Otherwise, he would have jumped on me. Christiana likes making the spirit of each horse shine in her photography. Her subjects are not always elegant breeds. I really enjoy taking photos of horses who are not really breathtaking at the first view. They inspire me. With her rich background in the arts, Christiana is also an explorer of worldwide traditions. She has several hundred magazine covers published every year, together with her calendars featuring her photographs. The horses bring you always back to the roots of a culture. And that's why I travel a lot and try to find horse breeds you have never heard about, like Neutgedachte horses, or uh, they live in South Africa, or Kaimanawa wild horses, they live in New Zealand, horses like that you will never find in a horse breed book. Um, I try to discover and um, inform the world about them. Christiana has written and published a few books featuring her discoveries. She's convinced that their beauty and empathy makes people become better. This is Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. Research indicates the health consequences of noise make it worthwhile to seek out some silence. Let's get some more details. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Ask five people what causes them to experience stress and it's likely these top the list. Workplace frustrations, financial difficulties, personal relationships, and jam-packed daily schedules. But there's another more subtle cause of stress that can be easily overlooked environmental noise. This can refer to any undesired sound in urban life. Exposure to noise pollution, even at relatively low decibels, can prove a significant health risk. Common noises include cars, trains, aircrafts, TV programming, music, podcasts, cell phones, 
construction, crowded public spaces and noisy venues. It's almost impossible for the typical urbanite to find a few moments quiet. But it's worth trying though, since doing so can carry significant health benefits. A recent study looked at the effect of road traffic noise on the cognitive development of children in Barcelona schools. They found that higher exposure to road noise at school was associated with slower cognitive development. It also affected working memory and the ability to pay attention. Many other studies have produced similar results. One was titled Noise Pollution, A Modern Plague and it was published in the Southern Medical Association Journal in 2007. It summarized its findings by stating, the potential health effects of noise pollution are numerous, pervasive, persistent, and medically and socially significant. Noise produces direct and cumulative adverse effects that impair health and that degrade residential, social, working, and learning environments. The solution is refreshingly simple. Seek out some intentional quiet. Time spent in silence can boost cognitive functioning and can even reduce cortisol levels. A 2006 study showed that two minutes spent in silence lowered blood pressure and heart rates even more than time spent listening to relaxing music. Nature therapy or forest bathing invite us to leave the noise of industrial life behind and embrace the quiet. But if getting away for a walk in the forest isn't a possibility, there are still easy ways to incorporate silence in our day-to-day -day routines. Start by turning off the tally and silencing the cell phones. Some of the time spent in our vehicles could also be quiet and radio-free. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.